As she preaches this morning, we pray for your peace upon her. It can be such a nervy thing sometimes. But also that you would anoint her with your spirit and with confidence to step forward and to present your word to us. And Lord, we ask for ourselves that we would have open hearts and open ears and that we tune into what you have to say to us today because we believe you are speaking and that you are part of our everyday. And so we just we now choose to align ourselves with you and to tune in. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 37, 1 to 3. Let's have a look. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the son of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought them their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age and he made a richly ornamented robe for him. Yep, sometimes men like clothes too. (laughs) A richly ornamented robe. And it's been sung about. We had a Lloyd Webber production just earlier. Uh, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Another Lloyd Webber collaboration. Their first, in fact. But let's have a closer look. Verse 1. Jacob, who is called Israel, is in the land of his father Isaac, Canaan. Becky's been preaching about Jacob the last three weeks. Those of you who've been here uh, will have heard that. Heard last week about Jacob's wrestle with God and Jacob overcoming God. Strange story. Go read it. Um, over the, since the start of the year, we've been uh, travelling through the Bible starting right back at the very beginning. So now we've moved into Jacob and the story of Joseph. So Joseph gives a bad report of his brothers. He's a bit of a dibber-dobber, this fellow. And he has a great sense of self-importance. And here's why. We've read it already. Now, Israel or Jacob loved Joseph more than... Well, it does happen in families, doesn't it? I don't know if it's happened in yours, but it did happen in mine. I was my dad's favourite eldest daughter. I used to think that was a clever way of getting around that family stuff, but the comparison point remains. Like Jacob, I developed insecurity and value issues. And Joseph, well, Joseph loved Joseph. A little prince he was, like some of our little prince and princesses, sometimes, not all the time, have a great sense of high value of themselves. Well, let's have a look a little bit further at verse 4. Well, really, let's think about it. You would have thought that Jacob would have learned from his own bad experience of favouritism, and Becky spoke about that last week. He was his mum's favourite, but not his dad's favourite, and there's a whole story around that. No excuses, whether he's born in his old age or what. Um, Jacob should not have been favouring Joseph. It leads to generational issues, doesn't it? And these brothers, he had a lot of them, they hated him, the scripture says. They could not speak kindly to him. Remember too that these are grown men, married even some of them, but they've seen and heard all this stuff for 17 years. They're over it. So the story goes on and the characters emerge, goodies and baddies, and the plot thickens. Joseph had a dream. That's a summary verse in verse 5 there. 
Now, dreams, as you'll know, and if you don't know, dreams in the Old Testament and in the ancient time were very important. It was all about revelation, usually from a higher being, from God. Well, Joseph's sense of importance increased, didn't it? I have a dream that one day you'll all bow down to me. Now, that bow down is a total act of submission because you could be kicked in the head. It's, you're in a really vulnerable place. So you can imagine his brothers hated him all the more. And then another dream about the sun and moon and 11 stars and a further interpretation, pretty much as the same as the last one, except it also included his father bowing down to him. Well, well. Now, who of you went through Sunday school and heard the Joseph story? Jacob, Joseph. I think there's a few of us here. So it could be pretty familiar territory to you. And if you haven't, you've got a few chapters in the book of Genesis to read and dig in a little bit deeper. Well, Jacob rebukes Joseph, finally. Verse 10. But I'm kind of thinking it's really a little late in the scheme of things. Joseph is 17. Jacob also questions Joseph and says, well, am I and your mother also going to submit to you? Well, you can see the story evolving. The brothers are jealous of him. And what does his father do? Pretty much what he's done for 17 years. He keeps the matter to himself and he really doesn't do too much about Joseph at all. Although I had a little thought about that, the little phrase he kept the matter to himself reminded me about Mary remembering what Jesus, what happened to Jesus in Jesus' time, those little things that happened, Mary remembered. Anyway, I'm not so sure Jacob learned too much about this. So the next scene in verse 12, Jacob, or Israel, sends Joseph off in his beautiful coat to see how things are going with his brothers far, far away and report back to him. Well, Joseph is obedient to his father and goes way, way far away from the protection of his father to where his brothers are caring for the flock in Shechem. But they're not there, says a man to Joseph, who's looking for them in some field somewhere. They're even further away, about 20 kilometres away in Dothan. Well, the brothers see Joseph. And that last dream was their last straw. The favouritism, the sense of self-importance, the little prince attitude. Hmm, the brothers hatch a plot to get rid of the dreamer. Nothing but a dreamer fellow. And I mean get rid of him permanently. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Well, one of the brothers, that's Reuben, the firstborn son of Jacob and Leah, tries to put a halt to it. Let's just put him in this empty cistern because he wanted to rescue him and take him back home. Well, Joseph arrives when Reuben is not around and is quickly derobed, that rich ornamental robe. Long story short, he gets tossed in, the brothers have dinner and sell him off to some Ishmaeli Midianite traders for some silver to travel with their spices and balms and possibly some other slaves all the way down to Egypt. Yes, Egypt, if you've been reading through Genesis, is that place where Abraham and Sarah did that sister act thing. Well, Reuben, the responsible older brother, comes back. And what can be said? The deed is done. Joseph is gone. How to spin this one to his father, to their father. 
Well, the rope gets dipped in blood, in goat's blood, and is used to trick their dad. And nothing new about trickery in that family, if you've been reading Genesis. It just keeps coming back. Well, Jacob, of course, is grief-stricken and refuses to be comforted. Meanwhile, the Ishmaeli Midianites sell Joseph off to a very important person in Egypt, an official in Pharaoh's court, the captain of the guard, a fellow by the name of Potiphar. Well, let's stop a moment. I don't know about you, but I want to know what's been going on for Joseph, the favourite, the darling, the precious, the spoiled little prince. And guess what? The Bible doesn't tell us, not in so many words. But it tells us another story, and we might get a hint of what's been going on for Joseph. And this story, not quite Fifty Shades of Grey, but a saucy tale nonetheless. So we see in this next section, in chapter 39, that Joseph has clearly learned a lot about God and about power, about submission and leadership, about weakness and strength. Well, let's have a look. The first bit of the story, after a repetition of the end of the previous bit about being sold to Potiphar, says this, verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph, a very important point. And he prospered, another important point. Now, we've talked about this before in this space. Was this a contractual thing, as in Joseph followed God's rules, so then God gave him stuff? Or is this a covenantal situation that is about relationship? I think it's the later, and here's why I think so. Even Potiphar saw that the Lord, that's Yahweh, was with Joseph and gave him success in everything he did. Now, how would an Egyptian, like all those other Egyptians who believed in many, many different gods and goddesses, know this? Some of those gods and goddesses are Googled. Ammon, Anubis, Aten, Atom, Bastet, Bess, Geb, Happy. Happy was the god of the natural flooding of the Nile in ancient Egyptian religion. There's Hathor, Horus, Isis, Kepri, I can't even say them all, Knum, (laughs) Ma'at, Mephthis, Nun, Nut, Osiris, Ptah, Ra, Ra Rahorakti, Sek, I don't know, how do you worship a god? You can't even pronounce his name, for goodness sake. Um, well, that's just a few of them, by, by the by. <laughs> and each one of them apparently had their own role to play in maintaining peace and harmony across the land of Egypt. And then, well, there are people who write books about these gods, like Wilbur Smith, River God. I think I read the first one, second one's out. Anyway, how would Potiphar know anything about God and Joseph unless, God, uh, unless Joseph had said something to him, unless Joseph gave credit where credit is due. You see, it's Joseph's conviction, I believe, his belief and deep assurance that creator God, the Lord, Yahweh, is the one who gives all good things to the earth and the people in it. And he's with him, with Joseph, with us. So even in strength, in weakness, one can be strong. And I reckon Joseph brought that thought forth to Potiphar. Because it's Potiphar who says, the Lord was with Joseph. Well, the story goes on. The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. And Joseph is elevated in position to chief household manager. 
And all Potiphar has to consider is what to pick off the menu for dinner that night. So far, so good. Now, Joseph, the Bible says, is well-built and handsome. A young man now in his prime. But there's a kind of a snake on the scene in the shape of Potiphar's wife who took notice of Joseph and overtly invites him to her bed. And Joseph, like any young man would, well, actually he doesn't. Instead he says to her, no one is greater in this house than I am. And let's note, Joseph is still a slave, he still has a master, a boss, but he is senior management. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. Further he adds, how could I do such a thing and sin against God? As a person of faith and integrity, he resists her on a number of occasions, the scripture says. Well, the Ten Commandments haven't arrived yet, that'll be in a couple of weeks' time, with us anyway, but somehow Joseph knows about God and God's ways, and I think he learnt a lot about that while he was a slave in transit from his brothers all the way to this place. He seems to have a personal relationship with God. I wonder how is this so? I think we have the answer to that question asked earlier. What did Joseph do all the while he was in transit, in transition from favoured to slave? Maybe he did some soul searching. What happened to me? Why did this happen? Who am I? It may seem like a modern question to us, but in fact it's a question asked for many centuries now. Who am I? Socrates is purported to have said, know thyself. Get to know who you are. But we know from the Bible, it makes it very clear that we can only know ourselves fully in relation to God and others. Now on Wednesday at the Hub Church, we did this thing called Enneagram It has nine personality types. Becky reckons I'm a number six, and I think she claims to be a number three. Yeah, we all get boxed, sort of, like we get numbered. But it was a lot of fun, as well as, um, yeah, a little bit of soul-searching with that. Who am I? How do I relate to other people? What am I like when I'm stressed? What am I like when I'm in a good place? It's good to do these things and consider who we are. Well, it would seem to be that Joseph came to understand and know deep, deep down that God was with him in whatever circumstance and whoever he was to other people around him, slave or not slave. Well, the story continues and there's more trickery and deceit. Potiphar's wife lies and tells her husband that Joseph basically has attempted to rape her, effectively betraying his master's trust. And she has evidence to prove it. A cloak. Probably not an ornamental one, but remember he is CEO, nice shoes, nice watch and all that sort of thing. Once again, we see that Joseph is derobed and Joseph goes off to prison. Oh dear, he was doing so well, wasn't he? And now this, the king's prison. But while Joseph was there in prison, the scripture says, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favour in the eyes of the prison warden. He was put in charge of all those held in the prison and he was made responsible for all that was done in there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph 
and gave him success in whatever he did. Joseph is definitely management material now. Joseph is partnering with God in God's purposes for his life and the life of others. Well, story goes on. Two very important fellows arrive. They've been imprisoned. Doesn't say why. The royal cupbearer and the royal baker. Now, for a king, it's about as important as you can get. Survival, drink and food, as it is for all of us. These are important guys. These two men both dream on the same night and scripture says each dream has a meaning of its own. Well, Joseph notices the next morning their dejection and confusion and offers to interpret their dreams. He's still got that gift somewhere. Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So Joseph uses his special God-given gifts not to build himself up, as he did with the dreams back with his family, but with great empathy to help others. He does, however, ask that he would be remembered when all goes well for you. Just a minor point there. Sadly, for one of them, it did not go well. The baker's dream was fulfilled and he was hanged. You can read the dream yourself when you get home. After two years, so clearly... The cupbearer did forget for a bit. After two years, while Joseph is still in prison, Pharaoh, the king of the land of Egypt, has a dream about fat and thin cows and the thin cows eating the fat ones. Personally, I'd call that a nightmare and it's no wonder he woke up. Same night, he had another dream about healthy and unhealthy grain stalks and the good grain ate the grain. What? That's just weird, I reckon. And he woke up again. No surprises. But what do you do when your mind is troubled? Because that's how Pharaoh woke up. Well, you do what everyone else does, don't you? You send in for your advisors and sorcerers. Come on, tell me what this dream is about. But we discover they're a useless lot. Now, the cupbearer, reinstated, dares to say to Pharaoh, I'm reminded of my shortcomings, and then proceeds to tell Pharaoh what happened to him two years ago when he was tossed in prison for bad wine or whatever it was, and about the dreams that he and the baker had. And more particularly, he talks about Joseph, who interpreted them. So Joseph is called to the palace to work for Pharaoh for a specific task to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Joseph is cleaned up, shaven and robed up. Interesting. He's been de-robed a couple of times and now he's robed up. He's reinstated to a decent position, better even than with uh, Potiphar. And he's prepared to meet the highest person in the land, a god in the eyes of many. But Joseph knows his gift, his special ability, comes from God. And he says so. I cannot do it, but God, El God, not all those other gods with all those weird names, God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. As in, he wants an answer, not just whatever he desires. So Joseph interprets the dream. After seven years of bumper crops, there will be seven years of famine in the land. And he adds, and the matter has been firmly decided by God and God will do it soon. Then Joseph, I think, takes a God-given risk. 
Joseph can be himself, truly, the person God created him to be, with his gifts, his abilities, all his experiences, everything. And he can use those for others. So he moves now from a godly management position to a godly leadership position. And I think it's interesting for us as Christ followers to consider as disciples. We follow Jesus, but we can lead others, even in the small things of life. Joseph carefully puts out a suggestion, a brilliant plan really. Verse 33, let Pharaoh look for a discerning and a wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt to collect, a little bit further down the line, a fifth of the harvest from now on and store it in reserve for the famine times. Well, Pharaoh appoints Joseph. He appoints him because he notices that the spirit of God is in him and that God has made known this dream to Pharaoh through Joseph. And the bit we go up to, Joseph is 30 years old. He's no longer a kid. He's grown up a bit. He's on the journey of life and maturity. Still, from a human perspective, Pharaoh uses Joseph for his own royal purposes. He gives him a new name, Zaphnath. Zaph, yeah, anyway. Anyway, I looked it up. It's a great deal of uncertain meaning, so we're not going down that path. But anyway, he gets a new name, which just reflects his new status and new role. And by the by, he gets a daughter for marriage from Pharaoh as well. So he's really up high. Well, we'll see next week when Michael preaches about Joseph the ruler, because that's indeed what he is, that Pharaoh may have a plan for Joseph, but God has an even higher plan plan for Joseph and he uses powerful Pharaoh in it too. Well this is all well and good isn't it hearing the biblical story and it's great to dig in deep and I really do encourage you read those chapters chapters 37 through to I think we got to 41 41 about 33 we got to get into the story have a look for those little nuggets those little gems those little bits of wisdom But what for us today? Maybe to help us remember. Think a coat, conviction and calling. What may be our coat issues? We all have a lot of experiences and a lot more experiences to come. We all have a lot to learn no matter what our age. There's room for us to grow. As we know, scripture says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Think on things. Maybe think about doing the Enneagram. Google it. There's a questionnaire thing, quite lengthy, but it's a bit of fun. Let's encourage one another to grow. Push ourselves a little, gently, speaking the truth in love, of course. Let's become more like Jesus, who was in perfect alignment with God, others, and himself. Another little point that we can learn from Joseph about living a life of integrity It's a given, I think, for Christ's followers. I think Joseph learnt that particularly in that Potiphar wife episode. So what about conviction? Quote, conviction. It is creator God who made us. That's what we believe. Who shapes us, calls us to live a life of love for others. 
Joseph hadn't quite learned that lesson way back in the beginning when he first got a beautiful coat. It is creator God that knows us intimately, says Psalm 139, and is with us always. And I think Joseph learnt that in his travels and in his different jobs. When we are weak, then we are strong. Vulnerability factors into being a disciple because God can really work with us instead of us just working out of our own strengths. I can't help but think of Jesus on the cross who did his greatest work when he was most vulnerable. So coat, conviction and calling. Well, calling. Joseph had a calling and his calling resided in who he was. See, calling's tied up with who you are. Whatever job you do, whether you get paid or don't get paid for it, God calls you to be yourself wherever, whenever, whatever, to be totally you, but a transformed you, a you that God's working in. God creates us and calls us to be ourselves with all our interests, our experience, that whole big stuff that contributes to our lives. So maybe we can remember, as we think about Joseph, about coat, about conviction, and about a calling to be our God-given selves. And let's also remember it is God who is present when everything else falls away and there's hope for us. And it is God who provides for our needs. And it's God who gives us power, equipping us for his purposes on earth. Well, that'll do for today, I think. It's warm. And Michael will pick up next week with the rest of the story. So let me pray a blessing Loving God, thank you for being with us this morning in this special time that we've set aside to be with you and with others who follow you. Thank you, God, that you encourage us through scripture, that you speak to us, to our hearts, and you speak to us about the things that we need to hear as individuals, but also as a church, as parts of the body of Christ. So God, I pray now, And pray a blessing on everyone here that we would go out into this world knowing that you are present with us, that you provide for us, that you are our power, equipping us for your purposes. Amen. Have a great week, everyone.